Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Springfield politicians, they promise they won't tax retirement income if they're constitutional. Phyllis, come on. Come on, fellas. Not now. You won the election, fellas, all right? You saved a tax hike for the wealthiest people in the state of Illinois. You won. You should go celebrate. It was literally like a year ago. Can we get God, something? A year ago? Come on, Phyllis. Let's get it something. It was on my mind. It was on my mind, D, because the column that has not yet appeared yet, but will appear next week. Ooh, isn't that funny how that works, ladies and gentlemen? It appears in my mind before it's on the page. Anyway, I talk about the fair tax. Yes, it's, it's still haunting me. Heard a lot of complaints. All right. The bit- oh. <laughs> By the way, just as a tease for tomorrow's Oh, What a Week, I sent you this article that was in the Tribune. And Flesner, remember him? Wait, somebody's calling me. Who would oh, be calling? This is great. Mark, uh, Mark Flesner? <laughs> Oh, it's Raymond calling me. Yes. Uh, Mark Flesner. Uh, t- wow, does he go after Lori Lightfoot? It's in the, the Tribune, and we will be discussing it tomorrow. All right. You're been dropped. You've been dropped. Oh, take that. Take. Are you taking that call? No, that would have been funny. Uh, should I call him back? Yeah, call him back. Whatever. Let's let listeners hear what producing the Ben Jarofsky show is all about. Yeah, Watson. yeah. And then we just kind of listen to it and we judge whether or not to take it out. If it's, you know, funny, we'll keep it in. Yeah, Raymond, uh, I'm on the air live. But uh, yeah, Dennis sent you an email. Just accept the link and bada boom, bada bing. That's the one. All right. Isn't that funny? All right. All right. We'll see you real soon. Take care. All right. Oh, door uh, doorbell. All right. I love it when my guests kick in. And now this particular guest, mystery guest, we're going to call him, is not due to start talking for another half hour, but he's going to be a great guest, ladies and gentlemen. I know it. I feel it in my bones. I just sense it. I had a conversation with him this morning on the phone. The man has a lot to say, and he is looking forward to saying it, so I can't wait to bring him on. That's, that's what you call a tease, my friends. That was good. You teased him. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, December 16th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of music to listen to, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. By the way, there you can download over a thousand episodes. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, SKY. For a lot of complaints. It is Thursday, December 16th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, 
Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Karen Musk Thursday, and here's why. Elon Musk, the super gazillionaire businessman, uh, has turned into one of the great trollers of all time, one of the great trash talkers of all time. And anytime Elon Musk senses D that, what, lefty politicians, progressive politicians, liberal politicians, a coalition of all of them are making any effort, making any success, making any head, headway, into fairly taxing him so that he pays at the same rate as I pay or Dennis pays or any of my guests today pay, he fights back. Well, he doesn't mess around like Kenny G, who is not as wealthy as Elon Musk, uh, but is the wealthiest man in the state of Illinois. And as we talked, we said earlier today, Ken Griffin, what he does is he funds commercials where he uses people like Phyllis to get middle-class people on the north and west, the southwest sides of Chicago to vote against their self-interests. Very successful at doing that, the fair tax. Elon Musk doesn't mess around with that. He just goes to Twitter and trolls. So, D, the latest one is he, uh, well, first of all, we talked already about how he's trolling Bernie. Like when Bernie was Bernie Sanders, I uh, was coming at him with, uh, you know, a, a tax that's taxed the billionaires, the wealthiest people in the country. He goes, oh, Bernie, I forgot you were even alive. Oh, and everybody, all the right. And the reason I know this is because as soon as he does this, all the right wingers, they come like flying high. Yeah, Elon, you tell him. So now he's now he's trashing uh, Elizabeth Warren. He calls her Karen, which is really funny because wait a minute, hold on, Elon Musk. Karen is like white women who accuse black people of doing things that they didn't do, and they use your whiteness to get the cops to go after the black people. How in the world does that apply to Elizabeth Warren? He doesn't care. And here's the funny thing. MAGA, it loves it. So this is beautiful how this works in our culture and our society. So you got a, a, a word, Karen, a name that was coined to make fun of white women, white people, but white women in particular. And now it's flipped around. MAGA's using it to make fun of Elizabeth Warren. And this is something else I don't understand, D. I really don't understand this. Why is MAGA fighting so hard to protect the Elon Musks of the world from paying more money in taxes. MAGA. Most people are MAGA. Well, I don't know if this is true. I'd say rank and file MAGA are not wealthy people. I would say that the richest people in America, they may vote for Donald Trump. They may vote for Republicans. They may enjoy the tax breaks they get from Republicans, but they're not sticking their neck out on the lines and fighting for Trump. They're not going to the MAGA rallies. They're not going on January 6th to Trump's uh, speech just down the street from the Capitol, and they're not following Trump's orders to walk down the road and go uh, invade the Capitol. No collusion. <laughs> no. Well, there is collusion, but it's like a quiet behind-the-scenes collusion. So why they are celebrating Elon Musk, uh, who is fighting and resisting uh, an attempt to raise the amount he pays in taxes to lower the amount that most MAGA people would pay in Texas, I do not know. It's very bizarre. Up is down and down is up politics. Uh, but I got I to gotta say this. I have to kind of give Elon Musk credit for it because uh, he is using Twitter. So he's avoiding having to pay any consultants, any strategists. He's keeping it really cheap 
And he's fired up MAGA anyway, because they're sending his message out loud and clear against Elizabeth Warren, who's trying to do them a break. Anyway, enough about MAGA, enough about Elizabeth Warren. I want to get to the main uh, topic of today's conversation. My uh, guests are here. Uh, and uh, I've been talking a lot about this for the last, I feel it's like it's three days, but it's probably just two days, uh, ever since the story broke in the BGA uh, about uh, what happened to Cabrini Green. And yesterday we spent a lot of time with Monroe Anderson uh, talking about it. has been promoting that the reporter Alejandro Cancino would be joining us. Uh, my second guest, uh, Raymond Richard, who will appear in the second part of the show, uh, is prominently featured in Alejandro's story. A great article uh, in the BGA by Alejandra Concino. And I want to give a shout out uh, to Nina Fuentes, who uh, was the one who alerted me to the story in the first place. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, a great pleasure uh, to bring Alejandra on. Alejandra, welcome to my humble little show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, so your show has been getting a lot of uh, talk. I mean, excuse me, your uh, article has been getting a lot of talk. It's an exhaustive investigation. Uh, right now it's on the BGA's website. I don't know if it's going to appear. Maybe it has already in conjunction with another uh, outlet. I, I know the BGA does that a lot, Better Government Association. Uh, but um, right now, if you yeah, want to, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. We do. We do. The um, Block Club Chicago has uh, uh, nicely agreed to uh, take it as well. And WBC is running it as well. So, yes, our partners are running the story. Thank you All for right. saying that. Well, it's a uh, um, it's really well worth reading, folks. And uh, this is a story about broken promises uh, that the city has made. Uh, in this particular case, to the black people who lived in Cabrini Green, uh, this goes back to the 90s when the city started breaking their promises. Uh, and uh, Raymond Richard will be joining us uh, after Alejandra has finished talking about her story. So we're going to get uh, some more insights into it for a man who lived in Cabrini Green and uh, uh, was Ray was grew up there. Uh, but before uh, Raymond joins us, Alejandra, why don't you talk a little bit uh, about what motivated you uh, to put this story together and what is your essential theme in this article? Go ahead. Right. So, um, you know, after uh, George Floyd's murder and the protests that follow calling for racial justice, um, we really wanted to um, try to figure out why Chicago was so segregated. And, and it made us think about um, Cabrini Green, which was the only um, black neighborhood in Chicago in the north side. Right. And so it made us ask a simple question, but what happened? What happened with the thousands of residents that live there and where did they all go? And that's basically what launched the investigation. And uh, let me just uh, back up to say it was the largest black community in the North side back in the day. And I'll get into this with Raymond when he comes on. Uh, there were black communities throughout the North side of Chicago, Rogers park, uptown, uh, Edgewater, uh, Cabrini green on the near North side of Chicago was the largest concentration of black people on the North side of Chicago. So, uh, I want to say, uh, Alejandro, how many thousands of people lived in Cabrini Green at its height? Do you know offhand? Yeah, so I've seen reports of fifteen thousand to twenty thousand. So there were um, 
there were three, um, the complex, the Cabrini-Green complex was the, the reds, which are the extension homes, uh, the high rises, the whites, uh, which were the William Green homes, and then the row houses. And in total, there were 3,606 apartments. Um, there were apartments for families. Um, so obviously more than one people lived uh, in, in them. Um, so we're talking about thousands of people who live there. Um, at a given time. We know from census data that about a third of the near north side in the 1970s uh, was composed of black residents. Um, and we also know from census data that, you know, if you fast forward to now, less than 10% of black residents live in the near north side. And so uh, your story begins uh, chronologically in roughly, I think, in 1997, when Mayor Richard M. Daly uh, comes before the Cabrini Green community to say, I got great news, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're going to, uh, well, you take it from there, Alejandra, and tell uh, folks what the great news and that great news is in quotes uh, that Mayor Daly offered people back in 97. Go ahead. Right. So at this time, you know, the, the landlord of the public housing units, the Chicago Housing Authority, had essentially let a lot of those buildings deteriorate to a point of no return. Right. Like the elevators were constantly breaking down. There were a number of units that were um, empty um, and the CHA was leaving them empty. Uh, residents had complained about um, infestations of uh, roaches. Um, they had a complaint about dirty hallways. Uh, there was graffiti in the walls, and the CHA was not doing anything to to fix those issues. And so, or it wasn't doing enough, I should say, to fix those issues. Um, and so, fast forward to 1996, which is when Mayor um, Richard M. Daly had a press conference that, that uh, there was a huge push from the city's business community um, to do something about Cabrini Green, right? It's really close to downtown. We're talking about a mile or so north of City Hall. And he unveils his, uh, at the time, was a billion-dollar plan to transform the community. Um, in mirror, a plan that a developer had unveiled um, earlier, um, and it, it was criticized at the time for the price tag and also for mirroring what the developer wanted. And um, there weren't enough. There weren't any um, Cablini Green advocates or residents at that press conference. So a year later, the mayor brings um, sends his um, people from his administration and a number of people to the. Um, a high school, the near North Metro High School, which is near Cabrini Green, to deliver the plan to the residents. And, and that's how we opened the story with this meeting in 1997. Um, residents were already, um, some of them were already rightfully so upset because they knew something was coming and they felt that they hadn't had a chance to voice their opinion. They had been asking, as I said earlier, for years for the CHA to do something about their situation and the community was uh, allowed to deteriorate to um, to a very critical point um, and that's uh, when we start the story and uh, so the issue is uh, there's in my mind I'll throw this at you and get your response uh, there's two issues one is the uh, deteriorating living conditions uh, in Cabrini itself, which uh, impact people who live there. Uh, and the other is the um, economic development. I got that in quotes issue of what to do uh, when you have a uh, complex filled with mostly poor people uh, 
that's public land, so it's not uh, bringing taxes under the tax roll, in the middle of the Gold Coast, uh, in the middle of one of the um, most valuable real estate uh, sites in the city of Chicago, just the middle of a, of a really uh, wealthy neighborhood or fastly gender gentrifying neighborhood. So those are two separate issues, uh, Alejandro, two separate political challenges. Uh, and so in my humble opinion, and it was, this was reinforced by reading your story is that the city chose to emphasize their, what the benefits it would have for the residents without really talking about the fact that it would be a gold mine, uh, for developers. And so the emphasis, if you place the emphasis on looking out for the needs of the poor black people who lived in Cabrini Green, you take attention away from the fact that a lot of people who are not poor or not black are going to make a lot of money by moving the black people out of Cabrini Green and tearing Cabrini Green and allowing uh, other uh, housing to go there. That's my read of the situation. And that's, in my humble opinion, why Daly uh, and his political allies, like, like Alderman Walter Burnett, put so much emphasis on meeting the needs of the residents. What's your thoughts about that? And, you know, we, we got to remember that Cabrini Green was a, a black neighborhood because the city was segregated in a way that it did not allow black residents to move to many other neighborhoods. Right. A lot of the residents who lived in Cabrini Green had come from um the Jim Crow South, South North to Chicago looking for jobs and economic opportunities. And when they got here, um, they found jobs in the manufacturing plants that were um, gearing up uh, for during World War II. But it, it was really difficult for them to find housing, right? Because they were only allowed in certain neighborhoods. Um, and so the condition deteriorated to such a degree that the uh, federal government, that's when they uh, gave money to the city to build the high rises, right? Um, the housing commissioner, uh, the public housing commissioner at the time wanted to build public housing across the city, but it was the city leaders who didn't allow her to do that. And she ended up building high rises mostly in black neighborhoods um, to relieve the pressure on the structures that were there before that were sub standard. Um, so you fast forward to the 80s, you're again seeing um, the lack of manufacturing jobs, right? Manufacturing jobs fleeing um, the city and going overseas. And with that, you see another economic depression, especially for black people who were employed in those manufacturing areas all around Cabrini Green, right? So you had um, Goose Island, which, which employed a lot of people, uh, the Montgomery Ward, um, um, plant that also employed a lot of people. There was an Oscar Mayer plant nearby. And so, you know, you're right to say that the lack of jobs, it, it is an, a public policy decision, right? How do the decision could have been, how do we help the residents that are there? And how do we create economic opportunities for the people who are there? And so in 1997, when um, the city sends um, people to Cabrini Green, that's what they promised. They promised 2,500 construction jobs in the near north side. And when we looked at the data, we could only find 40. That is deep. That headline alone, we talked about that uh, so much yesterday uh, when Monroe Anderson was on the show. And uh, 2,500, here's the headline. Green residents were promised 2,500 construction jobs. They got 40. Alejandra, 
I mean, in terms of betrayal, that's got to be one of the biggest betrayals, 2,500 to 40. Uh, and um, so how did you track this down? How did you track down uh, the, the 40? Talk a little bit about the process of uh, putting this story together where you figured out that uh, 2,500 were promised and 40 were delivered. So, you know, like job promises from politicians are really difficult to to nail down, right? Because there aren't often a lot of records that will allow you to see what's actually happened. But in the 1990s, Daly put a center in Cabrini Green um, with the idea of matching residents with jobs. That was the whole point. And we found uh, some data from that time period, which shows us that they, the center created, the people who were in the center wanted to really live up to the expectations and they did create jobs for the residents, but the majority of of jobs were in the service sector, not the higher payer construction jobs that the Dale administration had promised. And part of the problem uh, we were told in interviews was that a lot of the construction companies had contracts with unions and the unions have historically discriminated against uh, black Chicagoans. And that is why partly why they were it was so hard for them to land jobs right so if you have if you need to have a union card to begin with that creates a barrier of entry and then if you're not allowed to get that you know ticket in if you will then you know you're excluded um the developers we spoke with kind of uh, corroborated that storyline um and so then we wanted to go, well, what happened later, right? This is in the 90s. So I did a number of what are called freedom of information requests. Um, you actually have to request the CHA to give you data, even though it's taxpayers that put together the data. Um, uh, and so um, that data is um, the federal government requires agencies um, to employ to the greatest extent feasible, employ the residents that they serve, the low-income residents that they serve. And they're supposed to keep track of how many residents are higher in those new jobs. Um, and that's uh, the data that we requested, and that's how we were able to figure out uh, how many jobs went to Cabrini Green residents. Now, the CHA in between 2009 and 2020 has created more than 6,000 jobs, but the same pattern emerges. The majority of jobs have gone to uh, for jobs that are lower pay, paying jobs, um, like janitors, uh, like laundry mat assistants, and not the higher paying construction jobs that the administration had promised, especially when you zoom in, in uh, to Cabrini Green. So there was no effort made uh to use this as an opportunity. We're going to get into this more with Raymond Richards. There was no effort made as far as you could tell to say, all right, we have an opportunity here. We're going to spend a lot of money uh, to quote unquote, fix up this community. But at the first step we're going to do is make sure that people in the community uh, get some of the jobs to do the fixing up. So immediately an effort made to get them into the unions immediately an effort made to get them the training they would need uh, to be, have construction jobs. Like, so the two things would be going concurrently. So you no money for developers to redo uh, Cabrini Green area and make money off of it until uh, residents have been properly uh, trained and prepared for a future uh, with a high paying union job. As far as I could tell from reading your story, there was no effort made by the CHA or the city uh, to link taking care of residents with redeveloping the area. Am I correct about that? 
I think there were um, training programs. In fact, I talked to a resident who went through a training program with the unions through to, through the CHA. But what we found is that those training programs didn't necessarily lead to jobs, right? Like, so this is why we focus on like, what is the end result? Well, the end result is to get them jobs and the CHA's own data shows that those jobs did not materialize in the numbers that were promised. Um, and so, you know, we, this is why, you know, and, and Raymond will tell you his story later. He actually tried, he tried to be the matchmaker between the jobs in his community and the people who wanted the jobs and he couldn't get in. So this is how people like him started forming their own businesses, right? Like, so another part of the requirement, the federal requirements uh, on federal money is that not only jobs go to low-income residents, but a portion of the contracts generated from the federal dollars also go to the residents to create economic opportunities. Now, the CHA in 2016 created a program that a lot of people say is the best attempt at correcting years of wrongs. A lot of low, it was targeted for low income uh, business owners so that they could, uh, there was a mentoring program, there were some grants uh, for some of them, um, really allowing them to build capacity so they can get bigger and bigger contracts. But that uh, project or that program essentially ended with the new administration and um, some a version of the program still exists, but it doesn't have the um, training component and it, it doesn't have the mentorship and it doesn't have the financial backing that it had before. And so for some business owners who, who relied on that program, they've been almost a year without a contract and some of them are at the brink of folding their businesses by this point. Uh, and uh, by the way, one of the things that struck me, I mentioned this to you before we went in the air, uh, is the lack of cooperation that you had uh, with uh, city officials, uh, the local alderman, uh, Burnett, who was uh, the alderman at the time of uh, that Mayor Daly first came. Well, he's still the alderman, uh, did not respond. Jesse White did not respond uh, to your request for comment on my uh, uh, Lori Mayor Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I don't believe she responded either. That's my memory. And the head of the CHA did not respond. Am I right about all those? Yes. So we try repeatedly for weeks to try to get um, this uh, CHA CEO Tracy Scott to meet with us. We wanted to not only ask questions but also share our reporting. We, when we were denied that um, request, I, I called again and I asked them to reconsider. I really wanted to show them and unveil my reporting, and the answer was no. We also sent a detailed list of questions to them, and most of them went unanswered. So let me just ask this one. Did they ask you to send the questions in advance uh, before they went unanswered or did you just do that on your own? Well, they ask you to send questions. And what I usually do is send them a description of what the story is about. What I want is a candid conversation. Like at this point, you know, I've spent a year on the story. I want to show them what I, I want to open my laptop and show them the numbers and show them how I've done my work. Um, so they usually respond with send us your questions, which is, and then I respond with like, well, my questions are not going to make sense if you don't allow me to explain to her what I'm trying to say, right? Like, or how I arrived to those conclusions. Um, so, at, you know, we went back and forth and at the end, I did send a detailed list of questions. Um, they quibble with the way I asked the questions, but they didn't really answer the questions. And so, um, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, they just, they declined to be interviewed and declined to learn more about what we had found.
See that th- this is me speaking, not Alejandro. I got about I'm at least thirty years older uh, than Alejandro. I've been dealing with these. The, the uh, <laughs> I've been dealing with politicians in the city of Chicago a long time, Alejandro. In this game they play, you're like, give me your questions in advance. Why? We, we, let's just have a conversation. I didn't give Raymond Richards my questions in advance. Like he's coming on in about ten minutes. I, Raymond didn't go. Hey Ben, send me your questions in advance so I can what prepare for them. You know, they want the questions in advance because they want to see what you got. That's what they, what does she have? Is there something we're going to have to respond to? That's all. It's just the game they're playing. They're playing the same game with Alejandra that they play with the residents of the CHA. It's called a bamboozle game. That's me speaking, not Alejandra. That's just me getting that off my chest. But that, just listen to that recitation. And then they make it f- uh, the FOIA request. Now, l- I need to know this. Did, did you have to go to court to get any of the documents, or did they eventually uh, turn them over without you having to go uh, file a, a FOIA lawsuit? No, to the CHA's credit, they gave me the re- um, most of the rest the, um, the documents that I requested um, in one form or another. <laughs> um, uh, with this, the city of Chicago, um, you know, some of these documents go, went back to the 90s. And, and I did ask if I could go to the warehouse and look at the documents myself, because part of the um Part of the reasoning they gave me that they in, that they couldn't find more records was that they were so old. And I said, "Well, I I can look through them. I have no problem just going through them." And and they never responded to my request of allowing me to go through the warehouse. Um, so it, it's always a struggle, you know. Getting these are documents that are um, created by the bureaucracy so that we can hold them accountable for um, the promises that they've made to residents, and they are important documents that belong to the public. And yet, here in the state, we're required to request for the document and ask for permission to see the documents that we, the taxpayers, have paid for. Well put. I hope Matt Topic is listening. Uh, Matt Topic, I believe he's your lawyer as well as mine. Matt Topic, uh, FOIA fighter, I call him. Uh, when when people finally absolutely refuse to send you the stuff, uh, that's when you go to Matt Topic and he files the lawsuit. Just a little shout out to Matt Topic there. Um, I noted that uh, I got to give a shout out to Alan Lowry, who uh, was uh, like an editor or consultant to you on this story. Uh, Alden Lowry uh, is um, an editor over at WBEZ and uh, really brilliant guy in terms of studying uh, demographics in the city of Chicago. And uh, Alden's been talking for years, uh, Alejandra, about the movement of black people out of the city of Chicago. And not a lot of people are paying attention to him when he was first talking about it. Uh, and I've interviewed him in the past about this. Why aren't people paying attention? And his response was, Ben, it was, it was a really brilliant response. He goes, I don't think the people in charge thought of it as a problem. And uh, that was like a moment of revelation for me, like dang, lights going off in my head. Uh, and I, I, I can go down the rabbit hole, which I probably will do with uh, Raymond uh, Richard a little bit. I, I, I believe it's, it was part of the plan. I do believe uh, there was a plan to get poor people, poor black people out of uh, the uh, north side of uh, Chicago, uh, particularly this area and well, all over the city, really. But really in this area uh, and the impact of whether it's the plan or not, the impact uh, that your story brings home just in sheer demographics. And why don't you go into that a little bit? Because there's a chart in your story. 
it's like one chart tells all everything you need to know. Uh, and this is census chart from 1970 uh, up until what, 2020, I want to say, or is it 2010? I can't recall which one. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but just talk about the the drastic changes that have happened uh, in this sector in the last 40 years or 50 years. And I think that the census data really was eye-opening for me because you really can see because of the city's um, uh, segregation and uh, the way just the city handle uh, its black residents, we know that most of the residents of Cabrini Green were uh, black residents. And so there is a clear correlation between the towers um, coming down or, or the towers being in this rate, really, and um the population of the neighborhood. And you can see the decline in the 1970s, the population of the area, of the near north side was a, a third were black residents and today it's less than 10%, I believe it's 8% actually. Um, but I think something that I think is really interesting to me is that, you know, I almost feel like even newspapers have played a role in what happened. All of us in Chicago have played a role in really what happened to Cabrini Green because it was the sense in Chicago and the sense nationwide was that this was a problem that needed to be dealt with, that those people needed to be dealt with. And when you really use those words, you're really saying that black Chicagoans needed to be dealt with because the community was mostly black, right? And so you now are, they not only destroyed a community. And I think that is the right word to use. It was the destruction of a community. But then you also made them, the people who were still there were fighting, made them feel isolated, right? And then they were in fear because they didn't know who was living next to them. Most of the apartments were empty and squatters were coming in. So when you talk about the community, I'm talking about the multi-generational families who live there, the grandmas, the grandpas, the cousins, the uncles, the nieces, the nephews, right? There were probably other people who did not belong to that community who moved next door and might have done some things that were really bad. And so it was all that violence was heightened and the, the, the sense of community was taken away from the people who live there. And we all got a sense of, or a history. We all were told a story that was not complete about that community. Well put. Uh, and by the way, I should give a shout out to the CHA head that you alluded to earlier. Elizabeth Wood was her name. It was in the 1950s. She fought a, a valiant fight to have uh, low rise scatter site uh, integrated housing. Uh, and uh, the response of the city of Chicago and the residents of the city of Chicago is the 40s and 50s. Integration? Are you kidding me? Hell no. Uh, and, uh, it, it was, it wasn't Elizabeth Wood. It was the city of Chicago, Mayor Daly, the first Mayor Daly, ladies and gentlemen, there was a Mayor Daly before the baby Daly in the nineties who went to Cabrini Green. Uh, and, uh, that's built, uh, really emphasize concentrating, uh, poor black people into high rises to keep them out of white neighborhoods. And a lot of black politicians, uh, Alejandra, I know you know this from your research, appreciated that because that was their base. You get what I'm saying? So put them all on a high rise that could control them. So uh, it was sort of a one-two tag team operation in the city of Chicago. Alejandra, it's a great story. I urge everybody to read it. What's been the response to the story so far? Not just from, uh, well, there's been no response from Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She didn't talk to you. But uh, of people that used to live in Cabrini Green or, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, people, longtime reporters like myself who kind of watch this thing unfold, what kind of response have you been getting uh, since the story broke? 
The response has really been humbling. I didn't anticipate the power of really telling the story the way it was. Um, a lot of people who are from Cambrini Green have written thank you messages about not forgetting them, right? Like I think there's a, a real sense of pain um, that comes through being kicked out from your kicked out from your community, right? It's, it's really, it was really traumatic for a lot of people. And it only and it didn't only happen in Cabrini Green. It happened across the city in multiple uh, public housing uh, communities, right? And so I, it really has been humbling and overwhelming to hear from so many people who, who identify with the story and, and the way we told the story. And you were, was it yesterday? I'm getting it all mixed up in my mind. I apologize. You went to a school uh, and you passed out copies of the story. Was that yesterday that you did that? I did. I talked to the high schoolers. Um, you know, there was one student in the classroom who um, who returned to Cabrini. Her mom was uh, one of the residents who had the right to return. And she was talking about her experience living in um, a majority white neighborhood now and um, how these in mixed income communities are have been difficult to navigate for the people who are moving back, right? Because they don't have a community anymore. They're essentially isolated from um, the rest of the community there. And they're targeted, right? It's really easy. Um, for them to be stereotype. All right. And uh, before I let you go, because I know you uh, have have to get out and have appointments to keep, uh, tell folks where they can find the article if they haven't seen it already. I got to tell you, I just have to say this. I think I mentioned this. I, I think five separate people emailed me copies of your article. And it was funny. But it's like, <laughs> they're like, they, a lot of people think I'm just so old. I don't know how to use a computer. So, if it's not in print, which is true with me and Twitter, uh, Alejandro, but they're like, oh, well, this is not in print anyway. We better help this old guy out. So everybody is sending me it. And I'm like, yeah, I saw it already. I saw it already. It was, I got it from so many different people from so many different uh, corners of the city, from old friends, uh, people who you interviewed uh, that uh, worked on that job development site that you just alluded to. I see you, Galen. And uh, just it really had an impact. Uh, I could tell you that right now, just, just, uh, in terms of the people, the number of emails I got linking it to your story. So tell folks where they can get it. They can read it themselves. Um, you can find it at better gov that org. You can find it on uh, WBC's, uh, website and, um, uh, block club Chicago's as well. Um, and that's right. One of, you know, a lot of, one of the tools of investigative journalism is going back into the archives. And I actually read your stories from back in the nineties, uh, for this story. So thank you for the work that you did documenting, uh, what was happening in real time. Uh, that was uh, nice of you. Thank you, Alejandro. Yeah, I wrote a lot of stories back uh, in the 90s about what was going on in Cabrini Green. Uh, and we managed to avoid having this conversation without talking about how tiffs uh, played a role in it. But uh, <laughs> this is just the irony, a sad irony. Uh, tiffs are supposed to uh, eradicate blight in low-income areas. But in <laughs> what they used them for was to redevelop the area and move all the poor people out effectively through gentrification. So it's just an old... Um, what do I call this? An old development game uh, in the city of Chicago, uh, Alejandra, and you really uncovered it and you exposed it. And so congratulations, job well done. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
All right, that's the great Alejandro Consino. I'm, I'm going to move over to my next guest. He's been very uh, patiently waiting, and I appreciate it. Uh, his name is Raymond Richard, and uh, he is the CEO of Brothers Standing Together. Raymond, welcome to the show. How y'all doing? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, Alejandra has to head off, so she's leaving us uh, uh, at the moment. And um, so anyway, let me just start off by saying uh, one of the people uh, who uh, sent me the story uh, was a young man uh, that I've known for a long, long time. So I got to give him uh, a shout out. Uh, Anthony Jackson. Anthony, nephew. Uh, his nephew. Yes. And uh, so he was one of the people who sent me the story. And he said, my uncle is in the story. And I said, well, let me talk to your uncle. Uh, and one thing led to another. And Raymond Richard, ladies and gentlemen, now I'm doing, I usually do the show in Chicago, but I'm visiting my kids in California. So at 530 in the morning, and I'm not known for getting up early anyway, I get a call from a very ambitious uh, Raymond Richards, uh, who apparently gets up early. <laughs> All right, when are we going to do this show? So, Raymond, that's why I didn't call, pick up your phone call, because I was sleeping. I humbly apologize. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I, I understand, I understand. All right, Raymond. Um, so let's put some he, uh, human context into the story. Uh, you, were, uh, you grew up in Cabrini-Green. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what Cabrini-Green, your memories. Your Cabrini, I'm going to give your age away. You're younger than me. Uh, you're 53 <laughs> years old. All right? So don't feel bad about it. You're still younger than me. Okay. Uh, so you were growing up, you were a kid in Cambrini Green in the 70s and the 80s, right? right. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. correct. Um, 60s, right. 60s, okay, barely Late 60s, 60s, but all right, I'll give you that. Um, so talk about Cambrini Green uh, back in the day. So uh, first of all, Alejandra, thank you for uh, breaking the story. And uh, my nephew, Anthony, for c contacting me with you because this is going to be great. So... Growing up in Cabrini, it was a sense of love and unity in the beginning. Um, neighbors looked out for the children, and they all stuck together in unity. Now, before we get to that, let's go back to where Cabrini was actually used in some forms of a, a concentration camp, as you mentioned earlier, and where you had not just blacks, you had Germans, Polands, you had a lot of people over there in Francis Cabrini, because that's the area in the row houses what they call it, Francis Cabrini. That was a uh, row house part of it. And then in the William O. Green area, you had uh, a mix as well. So as later on in the years, as like you said, in the 70s, in the late 60s and the early 70s, it became predominantly black. And once it became predominantly black, it was ostracized as a bad area to live in, but in reality, it was a great place to live in growing up. As I was a kid there growing up, as I said, you had the community stuck together and everybody looked out for everybody. And I can remember if I did something on Oak Street, I can get a whooping <laughs> on Oak Street all the way back to my house only to get another whooping because <laughs> the parents did not play that. And they and the community was a, a loving uh, community came together as one. Now, in the late, early, in the late 70s, in the early 80s, when the crack epidemic broke out, is when all the stuff started to happen. As you start to see the, the segregation and the, uh, uh, not gentrification because it was all dominantly black, but 
the ostracization, as I should say, we was ostracized as these people, right? And so in this community, uh, you knew uh, we had George Dunn was the uh, the great white savior of the community. He's supposed to have been doing so much for the community, which he did. I can't take it. I ain't going to hate on him. But in that time period, you had people who grew up together as now political forces that act as if they didn't live in Cabrini. So I was born and raised in Cabrini. I, I grew up with Walter Barnett, the alderman. Him and my mother, they were partners, and they and we lived, we lived right down the street from each other. So as we talk about Cabrini Green, we talk about, they don't talk about the richness of it, right? They don't talk about the purity of it. Uh, Jay, as you already do, I know you already know, that being, it was, we had singers, we had, uh, we had singers, we had submarine captains, we had professional ball players. We had a lot of stuff come from Cabrini, but you ain't gonna hear nothing about that because there was those people, right? So, and the crack epidemic hit, that's when they looked at Francis Cabrini as a golden opportunity, because you got to remember, Cabrini Green is 15 minutes away from the lakefront and downtown. So that's walking distance. And walking distance, so what greater place it would be than to have those them other people, right? there and then take those us black people and put them in concentrated areas as called the projects. And therefore they can be what? Manipulated and they can be easily controlled. And that's what happened. So from me living in the row houses, not knowing what I know now that when we moved to the projects, I'm thinking we've just a change. I didn't think that we were forced out of the row houses because of the living conditions of which we couldn't. I guess we, my family didn't fit the bill. I'll say that. So anyway, as we grew up and as we moved to the projects, I started to see how the rat project was done. And I never forget on Channel 11. And they had that complex building where they had the rats on this floor and that floor and that floor. And eventually they will start to fight and hurt each other. And so this is what the projects, I truly believe, was born from. And so as we got there, and we in these projects, now they're saying these people are so bad, they're so terrible, they're so this, they're so that. But all the lies, the blatant lies that were supposed to come to the project to help enrich it, never came. So now we're dealing with, we had to look to drug dealing, gang banging, robbery and things of that nature in order to survive, right? So they say, okay, these guys, these people are so terrible because you got to remember we was on the news so much it was, we, we had a reality show before it was actually a reality show because every day you seen Cabrini Green was on the news. It was a horrible place to live. Oh, don't go back Cabrini. They'll kill you. They'll kill you. But in the reality, nobody said that it wasn't no help. It wasn't no mentorship. It wasn't no real leadership there. They're not telling you that. And the people who was actually trying to do it was ostracized and uh, blackballed out of helping the people that really were trying to help. So that happened. So now, as I'm growing up, it became normal to see a dead body. It was nothing to see a dead body. 
it became normal to see uh, glass everywhere and stuff. All it was just all in disarray. And I was wondering what's going on, what's happening, something's happening. But I didn't know I was young at the time. I didn't have no idea that we were being ostracized and we were being uh, the gentrification side of uh, us. They was putting us there at, or like a tank box, right? As long as you stay in this specific area, then you okay. If you come outside, you come by the Gold Coast or you come by home, now you're outside of your bounds. You know, as if, let me give you a perfect example. In the row houses right now today, they have a police car at the beginning when you come in Cabrini in the row houses, and you have one at the end. And it is designed for to contain whatever goes on in between these two cars. And once they come outside those cars, then there's a problem. But as long as it's not, there is not a problem. We didn't get, we wasn't getting the help. We didn't get the mentorship. And then they came over there and they seen that the land was so prestigious and they say they don't even know what land they own. And it's almost like the, uh, back in Africa, like, you know, they took the land, they came to seize and take this land in order to, for their own good. And they started to say, well, how can we eliminate the people? So they started to tear down the project. They came up with this divide plan. First, they did this. First, they grabbed the so-called the gang leaders, right? Locked up the gang leaders. Got rid of them. Then they started to tear down the buildings, right? All over the city of Chicago. Robert Taylor's, the Ickies, the Dib, not the Dib, but Dib one still up there. Uh, the Ickies, Robert Taylor, uh, what else? The low end, and Cabrini Green, right? So now these were the main place, places that they can they can use because they seen how much worth the land was. We didn't know at the time. Nobody ever knew that in the beginning that Cabrini Green was worth one point one some billion dollars worth of real estate in the land. But they knew. And they said in order to get rid of them, we gotta devise this plan. So they came up with uh, evictions and all kind of stuff in order to get us out of that one strike rule and all these things in order to get these people out. So now when they got us out, we couldn't we couldn't get back in until that law came in of the right of return. As you already know, you being a veteran, so we growing up looking for people. They came with all this false hope. We're gonna help you guys. We're gonna we're gonna they might. They might take the playground and fix up one playground, but all the other playgrounds messed up. They might clean up one building and leave the rest of the buildings. So the, the, the notion of them trying to actually help us in Cabrini was all a fact. All right. It was all uh, fact. Wow. That was a great riff and a lot <laughs> for me to work with. Uh, but let, let me ask you this about growing up Cabrini, uh, which, as you pointed out, I don't want to call it a, you, a concentration of black people, poor call black it. people. But, call it okay. the truth. A concentration of poor black people. Now, follow me in this one, Raymond. Surrounded by the Gold Coast, just yeah. down the street from Cabrini uh, is John Hancock Building. Yes. Uh, just down the street from Cabrini is North Michigan Avenue. Yes. Now, as a kid growing up in Cabrini, and, and you kind of sense this. If you ever seen the movie Cooley High, this is probably before your time, but Cooley High is a movie that came out in, in 1975 
about life in this area in 1964. And the, the kids in Cooley High leave Cabrini Green and you, you watch them. They go to Lincoln Park Zoo. There's scenes yes. where they're running up and down Michigan Avenue. I know you've probably mm-hmm. seen Cooley High, uh, Raymond, even though if you yes. were very young yes. at the time. And, and so it's that sense, like, you're right there where rich white people are. You're like, they're literally your neighbors. Right. But it's like an invisible wall of sorts. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. so talk about what it was like as a kid, uh, little Raymond, uh, little Ray, or whatever they called you back in the 70s, <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you left the shelter of Cabrini Green, I got shelter in quotes, and ventured out into the Gold Coast, to North Michigan Avenue. Uh, what was that like? You know what I'm saying? What was the response? Like, what was your attitude about the white people, the wealthier white people that you encountered, and what was their attitude toward you? Go ahead. It was a whole new world because we lived in a four block radius. You got to remember that from North Avenue to Chicago Avenue, right? And from Orleans to Holston, that consisted of Cabrini, right? So at the end of the day, I never forget, we was at the Shell gas station right there on Orleans and Chicago Avenue. And one of the older guys told me, he went across the street. I think it was the American restaurant. I'm not for sure if that restaurant was there. It was one of the restaurants there on the corner. And he said, cross the street. And I argued with him. I'm saying, cross the street for what? He said, cross the street. So when he got me to cross the street, he said, now you came a little bit further than you've been. Now, look, if you keep going this way, you'll start to see some things that's going to change your mind. As Now, he said, it's going to blow your mind. And so I'm like, what is he talking about? So I ventured down the street. And as I ventured down the street, the streets was much nicer. The buildings was much nicer. People, I was like, wow. So it was like a whole new world. So once I got to Magnet on Michigan Avenue, I'm basically lost because this is not where I come from. And I never knew this part even existed. So when you talk about the uh, gentrification and the separation, segregated. So this side of town, this side of the north side, it's the most prestigious side of the north side. And where I come from was the poverty-stricken side. And so they looked at you like you was trash, like you didn't belong there. Like, what is he doing down here? And, you know, and I can remember how the white people would grab their children or they grab, if they weren't their children, they grabbed, they was grabbing their purses, right? And they was giving you this look like it's, if they was intimidated, they was scared. And you looking at them like, what the hell is going on? What's wrong with them? But not knowing that this is how they feel about us. So, and then you have to think about it. That's 15 minutes that way. You can go down to the uh, Lincoln Park. You know, the Gold Coast is like actually five minutes away. So now all this luxury you're around, but you're, it's like you're blocked out. It's like you're, you're not included to this. You can come this. I can remember us back in the heyday when I used to hustle. And I was go and I would go down to Vision on every Friday, and I think they still do it if they just didn't completely block it off. Like clockwork, right there by mothers where Mayor Daly, the second Mayor Daly, son, uh, son had that incident where he jumped at the young man died. Right there, they would put the blue uh horses right there. Yeah. 
and tell us this is what we had to stop at. We couldn't come no further than that. And the only way we can get further down on Rush Street is we had to go all the way down Chicago Avenue and come down there. So growing up as a kid with the Ruby Cubes and all that down there, it, it was hard. It was a fight just to get to there. Yeah. By the way, it was uh, a, a good recollection of your party, but it was uh, Richard M. Daly's nephew, not his son. His right. nephew his got nephew. in the fight. His and uh, he, he exactly. killed David Kochman, uh hit him in the. Uh, but, right. uh, oh, I remember. I re- there were I don't I think you said you were a sports fan, but this is, could be before your time. The Chicago Bulls had a center named Artis Gilmore, and he came to the Bulls in about 1976. Oh, yeah. I remember Artis. Yeah, and uh, Artis was seven foot two inch black man with that afro. Follow yeah. me on this, Raymond. <laughs> yeah. So he kind of stood out. All right, mm-hmm. they wouldn't let him into a club. Uh, one of those clubs. I don't I don't know which one it was, but in the um, wow. the Rush Street area. And this is wow. welcome to Chicago artists. All the Bulls fans are excited because finally we have a center. You know what I mean? Well, boy, right. was okay. But anyway, but we, we finally have a strong center and they wouldn't let him into the club. So yeah, they, I, they didn't want that line that you're describing breached. Uh, if, exactly. if you will, they didn't want to breach now. All right. I'm going to give you my political theory, which I already uh, uh, shared uh, with uh, Alejandra and feel free to vehemently disagree with me. I don't care if my guests disagree with me. So if you disagree with me, disagree with me. I believe, and she's, uh, Alejandro in her article sets up the situation in the 1990s where Mayor Daly and the powers that be in that area come before the residents and they say, this is, we really want to help you. We're going to clean up Cabrini Green. We're going to make this a really nice community. We're going to take advantage of this. I believe that was subterfuge. I believe that was uh, a made up uh, reason for, uh, getting rid of Cabrini. I think the real reason to get rid of Cabrini was not to help the residents, but was to uh, take care of the real estate interests that were just dying to get at that land. Cause that was exactly. very valuable land. And I believe they just used, <laughs> they just used the residents as a <laughs> excuse. Exactly. You know, they used the crime, the deprivation and the heartache yeah. uh, that was Cabrini green at that time as an excuse to get rid of it. Do you agree or disagree with me, Raymond? I agree with you. And even we can take it a step further. Remember when Jane Byrne came over there, called herself moving in? Yes. To help help get the uh, community together. And that was a plot. And that was a ploy because there was no there was no skills developing, was no mentorship again. There was no actual help being put in the community, it was only plots and myths in order to say, if we do this, it can look like that. But they know it in terms, without proper training, we will be ostracized out of our own community in which we're being to this day is still in existence. So, of course, I know that was a lie. That was a lie, and, and everybody knew it was a lie. It was only because they discovered, like, man, this land, ooh, (laughs) <laughs> this is some land. This is raw land. This is prime land. If we get rid of them, we can build condos. We can do dog parks. We can do all these things we want to do that we weren't able to do because they were here now. And then they work off the dissent decree as well. Don't forget about the dissent decree of the promises that they made that they blatantly broke. You know what I'm saying? And so when they seen the opportunity to seize it, because if you 
if you don't have nothing to look up to, then you do what you always do, right? And as they're saying, doing the same thing, look for different results is insanity, right? And as I stated earlier, it had became, in the crack ed- epidemic, it became like a reality show because all the crime and things was going on. But they were talking about the crimes, but they were never talking about the solutions. See, they only showed what was negative. They ain't show the positive. They ain't show what could have been or if they extended a hand to help the people in Cabrini, how that could have over that the circumstances could have changed dramatically. No, because they knew that if they wanted to use that land, they had to get rid of the people that was on the land. Yes. Completely agree with everything you just said. Of course, uh, and I have to say this a little personal aside. I'm not from Chicago. I think I told this, uh, Raymond, before we began the mm-hmm. show. Uh, but the first time I, in uh, 1981, I want to say it was 81, maybe it was 82. Who knows? I, the year, man, it was so many years ago, I can't remember. <laughs> when I first walked through this area, and it, when people say Cabrini Green, they think of the high-rise complexes that are run by the CHA. But I think of the Cabrini Green community as wider and going north. And Raymond, I remember walking down Sedgwick in about 1982. I couldn't believe I was on the north side of Chicago. It, it was <laughs> a black community from North Avenue all the way to Division. And I know you remember this because you were probably living in and around there. Yeah. And it's astounding to me how that area is so different now i don't recognize it it's it's unrecognizable and it, it was black people who owned the property uh, there mm-hmm. were black businesses yeah uh, i have to believe i have to believe that there was an economic development plan i do know a little bit about economic development history in the city of chicago and they struggled with this in the 70s when they were coming up with their economic development plans they were saying well we can't get rid i could show you the documents uh, raymond where they talked about we can't get obviously we can't get cabrini green gone so we're gonna have to figure out some way to develop in and around cabrini green and guess what they did figure out a way to get, they exactly. did get rid of it Exactly. If you think of, I think it was a, a, a show, a, a story, a documentary on YouTube. It was called The New City. And if you look at Cabrini right now, or right there on Claiborne, what is it called? The New City. Because they, they build around it first, and then they work their way inside to push the people out of there in order to get what they actually really wanted. Now, you take in consideration that they say, uh, we have to help. Okay. Uh, what's the definition of help? Reaching out to help one ensure that one's ability to uh, move on, right? They say job opportunities, right? Okay. So they're talking about the mentor part of the job opportunities, right? So Ben, if, if they was put together in order to help the residents become productive members of society in their community, then wouldn't the trade epidemic came into play where they can learn it? Because guess what? That's the number one thing goes on today in Cabrini Green right now is, oh, we want to hire you guys, but you don't qualify. Mm. All right, but now. it was promises, like you said, a broken promises. 
came from years ago, decades ago, when they was going to help teach the people these trades and show them different things which never materialized. All right. Now, uh, in in the story uh, by Alejandra, uh, you talk about what what happened to you, your own experiences uh, when you tried uh, to uh, get local residents construction jobs. So why don't you give uh, folks a little uh, background on that? What what happened uh, to you? What was your firsthand experiences when you tried to get some of these good jobs for residents of the Cabrini Green area? We were rejected. We were told that we don't we don't have the skill set in order to uh, compete with the job. And they said everybody can't be laborers. So the, it was handpicked. You had a handpicked few of people that would get jobs in the community where there were hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And now we already know it was thousands of jobs that were supposed to materialize from that. But it never happened because they said we didn't fit the criteria. And so I kept going to them, the aldermen, the everybody, the local, the LAC council, and I'm saying we need to create some form of job opportunity for the people in the community. Well, they don't forget, they don't fit the bill, right? And now we we goes back to the same thing, token. I'm gonna say token black man, right? So if they get a token black man a job or a few of them, then they can say what? We did our job. When they ain't even came close, it wasn't even 1% of what they were supposed to do. So after bumping, going back and forth, we picketing, we protesting, we arguing, we, we cursing, we even had a few fights. Then I said, okay, how can we get employment for the, the men with backgrounds, the men and women with backgrounds, right? People who didn't have the skills, how can we get them employed? And that's when BST Construction was born. And that's how we did that. So, and then with that in 2016, as you already know, CHA came up with the ploy of the job program, job boarding contracting program, which allowed us to hire the residents in the community, right? And so that's how that was born. And then I also went out to meet with developers and companies and asking them, why can't you hire these group of people? Cause you know, they was ostracized as people with backgrounds and, and in the Bible it talks about the least, the lost and the left behind. And that's what they were considered as. And so that's why they wouldn't hire us. Wow. And uh, did you have any allies, any political allies who were standing up for you and fighting for you? Uh, no. Making this a- None. None. Do you think it would be any different? <laughs> Do you think it would be any different had Harold Washington lived uh, and had been mayor throughout the 90s as opposed to uh, Richard M. Daley? Of course, it would have been a great difference. And let me, let me take it back because I don't want people to get it construed. Okay, I was born and raised in Cabrini, right? I, was, I grew up in a single-parent home. I joined the gang at 11. By the time I was 14, I was in the uh, juvenile. By the time I was 17, I was in the penitentiary. I had been left for dead three times on Dead Man Field in Cabrini Green, right? I had been to the penitentiary six times. I've been strung out. I was homeless, living on the Lord Walker Drive for two and a half years. And God delivered me. 
So I have been through that storm and I know firsthand how it was. So my promise to God was, if you take this away from me, I would dedicate my life to helping as many people I can to become productive members of society. And this is where this crusade, Brother Raymond and Brother Stand Together came from. And that's the mission I have been on since 2009. And this is where I'm at. See, and, and, and so when people look at me and say, well, you used to be this and that. I was, but I changed. And I'm showing the people in the community that they can change as well. And they only needed some help. And I came to try to help them, but the the uh, elected officials and the powers that be would not help me in assisting the people. And that's why the struggle is going on today. When, when you came for looking for assistance to help the people, did the powers that be recognize you and know you as uh, this young man who grew up in Cabrini Green and bottomed out and was living under Lower Riker Drive? Uh, did we they grew know- up, of course they knew who I was. They all knew who I was, and they all knew my struggles. They all knew where I came from, and they all knew how God changed my life, and they watched me do the work. They said, Raymond, go get your, uh, go get your license. I want to get my license. I want to get my uh, EIN number, and I want to get my uh, business license. I did everything they asked me to do in order to help this become legitimate so that I can go back and help the people. And after I did all that, clean and sober, haven't been I haven't had I've been drug free for the last 15 years, right? And I still could not get no help. All while I, I don't forget that I was a community activist as well as a world activist. I've been in the front line with uh uh Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, uh all the all the violence in Chicago, as well as down in the South. You know, so you when you're talking about have I reformed and have I changed. You can see I got documentaries out there, which they see firsthand that this brother has changed. And yet I still cannot get the help that I needed in order to help our people become productive members of society, all because of whatever political plan that they had. And uh, I should point out, Raymond no longer lives uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, And this is a theme, Raymond, that I've encountered so many times with so many people I know who uh, used to live in that area, not again, not just Cabrini Green, but going north uh, along Sedgwick uh, to yeah. uh, Division. So many people I know who used to live around there don't live there anymore. Y- no, you know, you, you get pushed out. It's like you get pushed out. Man, listen, I came home in 2008. By 2009, I had my organization, Brothers Stand Together, up, and it was going. We fed the youth. We fed the seniors. We fed the homeless. We clothed the homeless. We made sure that the seniors had everything they needed. We did toy drives. We did black tie galas. We gave out awards and everything. And still, that was not enough. And I even gave a award to Walter Burnett. I gave a award to the Secretary of State, Jesse White. I gave awards to the people that Miss Steele from uh, the LAC all of them, I gave them awards because I appreciated what they did. All I was trying to do was help help our community, and I was ostracized because of that. And then the people would not help me, and it cost me. And then with the when the CHA folded on us, and when the, the COVID came, they came with a tactical excuse talking about uh, your paperwork, all your paperwork went in, and not to give us an opportunity a lot of companies that was in the uh, uh, job program, they 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 kicked us out 
on some technicalities. Not because that we was poor, we didn't do the work, or we weren't unreliable. It was all the technicality. It was a mere plot for to use the union versus the people in the communities. And that's what's going on. And that's what I, that's how I, that's what it is. And that's the truth. And if you ask anybody about me, they'll tell you that I always help the people. I'm always for the people. I stood out for the people, and that's all I've been about. All I was asking for was a little help. I wasn't asking you to do nothing for me. I was asking you to do something to help for the people, and they rejected me from doing that. And now as you see the comments coming around, and now people wishing that they would have helped Brother Raymond instead of looking the other way and using their own discretion of what they think of me. I don't care what you think of me. Cause I know what God did. God delivered me. He changed my life. So I ain't gonna live. I ain't gonna let the record of my past reflect on my future. And I won't allow people to do it. And they were wrong. And they still wrong. And the redevelopment. Walter Burnett's war is the best redevelopment in the world. Not in the country. In the damn world. You ain't never seen a place remodeled like that, man. And they still remodeling. And now, is we gonna get a part of that? No, we're not. If they if if they don't allow, if we don't stand together, we won't. If you look at this, now you tell me this, Ben, you're a veteran. One billion, 10% of one billion is what? Uh, wait, hold on. I can do the math. A uh, hundred million. We just need 10% of that. Yeah. We don't need all of We need 10% of that. Yeah. Listen. And that would change the outlet of everything, man. And these people are looking. I, I don't know if they're consumed by greed prestige, power, I don't know, but what it is, it's costing the people. And all people like myself is trying to do is help our people. I'm not trying to hurt nobody. I gave out jobs. The jobs, when I lost the contract, you take 10 people that I've hired, and when I lost the contract, that's 10 people unemployed, that's 10 people families that can't get fed, and now we have to resort to where we came from, right? Because we're survival. We survived, we created to survive, and we survived through almost anything. If we took chillings and made it an entree, so you know we can survive off of anything. So come on, man. And that's what they do. And then they talk about recidivism and the violence. What you think is violence perpetuated from? Because it was designed by the man in order to do that. We didn't create the drugs. We ain't got no guns. All that stuff mysteriously come up in our community and in our neighborhood. And then they say, oh, look, the violence is out of hand. Because violence and black death is a hustle. What do you mean by that? That last sentence is very powerful. Uh, violence yes. and black death is a hustle. If you, the, the, the grave, the, the, the more get paid, right? The, the, the city and the state get paid. The more times you go to jail, like I've been to jail six times. So you recidivate. If you take, I think it was $40,565 when I was going to jail, right? Hmm. Now, if you could turn that back, 1,800 to 2,500 people in, a, in one facility. In one facility. Now, we ain't talking about the 42 facilities that they got or they had, right? And so you that's, that's the hustle. So you can pull me over on the street, and I ain't did nothing. But if you give me a felony, now I got to go back where? I got to go back to jail because I already had it. I got a background. That's and then they say your mo is all you do. All we consider is doing is selling drugs and playing basketball. They ain't gonna talk about how how brilliant our minds is because nobody even paid attention to that. And that, that's what I mean. And all the killings 
if you think about all the killings going on in the city of Chicago, are they all created by black on black crime or is it perpetuated? So we got to think about that as well, because when we start talking about these crimes that has coming at an alarming rate and how these children are being killed at an alarming rate, what is what perpetuated that? that nobody wakes up and say, I'm going to be a murderer. Nobody wakes up and say they're going to be a drug dealer, a drug addict, a, a rapist. Nobody do that. This is a learned behavior because of the circumstances and conditions in which they come up in that they have to do what they have to do in order to survive. Is I'm looking for an excuse? No, I am not, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not looking for an easy way out. I'm telling you like it is. And unless you lived in the black and brown communities, then you would know. If you don't, then you wouldn't know. But I'm telling you how it is. I had choices, but I didn't have mentors to pull my hand and help me and lead me this way. I wouldn't have went to jail. Maybe I wouldn't have been shot. Maybe I wouldn't have been on drugs. Maybe I wouldn't have been homeless. Come on, man. But that's what it's perpetuated to do. And that's why our children now. And then you look at it, too. Ben, they done took the power from the families and the parents put it in the children's hand, knowing damn well them kids don't they don't know the asshole from the ground and they gonna mess up and now they doing that and now everybody said oh my god it's getting out of hand it's going well we don't know what to do come on man that was part of the plan to ease in and continue to do what they do conquer the land like they did in africa when they claimed they took the land. They ain't took nothing. Them, the word came down that these people was coming and all the Africans packed up and they moved. And anybody can plant a flag where ain't nobody standing at. Come on, man. They ain't fooling nobody. Raymond Richards, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Raymond, now you live in, in Texas. Yes. So, wow. Just think about that for a moment. Texas. I had to. Yeah. I couldn't uh, get no contracts, Ben. I couldn't get no moral support from the people. And the little help I did get, let me say this. LaShawn Savoy, state rep. Lakeisha Collins, the new, the rookie on the team. Then were two that I can turn to, and they would give me as much help and support as they possibly could. Secretary of State, Mr. White. I have to take my hat off to him because even whatever they said, whenever I called on him, he responded. But the rest of them, I don't know. What, I don't even know what happened to Patricia. Uh, what happened to Patricia uh, Van Pelt? Who is she? State Senator Patricia. How? Where? Where? She don't do nothing. They don't do nothing, and then they always talk about what's going on in the black and brown communities in which you come from there. She come from the Cabrini herself. But you ain't trying to help it. Come on, man. It's too many games going on, Ben, and that's the problem right now. And Don't nobody want to own up to their shit, but they always want to point out what somebody else is doing, but they ain't on the – look in the mirror yourself because I looked in the mirror. I know what I did wrong, and I'm correcting my – I'm writing my wrongs. Are you writing your wrongs? Hell no. They don't care about us. Like Michael Jackson said, they don't give a fuck about us. Uh, and uh, I have to say this. This has been going on a long time. Uh, I remember – I was telling Anthony about this. Back in the 90s, Raymond – when they tore down the Chicago stadium, the great Chicago stadium where my beloved Chicago Bulls played, uh, and they put up the United Center, 
they moved out the peanut vendors. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you, you were around for that, Raymond, but it was to me so symbolic. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. There, <laughs> there are these black people making money. Mm-hmm. Literally, and, and we talk about this as a, a capitalistic country and a free market country, and we want to. Uh, I'm not saying they're all turning into John Johnsons, uh, Raymond. I'm not saying uh, that they're turning into wealthy men. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying they're making some money legally, providing a service. People want peanuts, okay? Yeah. Not harming anybody. Making money, that's what we're, are we supposed to be teaching people to love capitalism and free market? Isn't that what it's all about in this that's country? What they, say it. they moved, they got a, they gave them a tax break to build the United Center. And the, one of the first things they did was they passed a law outlawing peanut vendors. Yeah. And, and they, they cooked up an excuse for it, Raymond. They said that the reason they did it was because they didn't want the peanut shells dropped in the United Center. They cooked, like they cooked up an excuse. Well, we're but really helping. You got, helping a, you got a janitor. You got a janitor, right? Yeah, they didn't want, well, it could lead to cockroaches, Ben. That's what we, but right. really, they just didn't want the peanut vendors selling the peanuts that they could sell in the stadium and secondly, if you eat peanuts, Raymond, I'm going on a trail here. Suddenly you're not hungry for a hot dog. Yeah. Like, it temporarily fills your stomach. Yeah. You're not, and so, like, maybe I won't buy a hot dog. I'll just eat these peanuts until after the game's over, and then I'll go to a restaurant or whatever. Do you follow what I'm saying, Raymond? Yeah, exactly. So, and, But this is what I'm talking about, Ben, is the economic is, is divide. That plan is there in order to manipulate and take whatever – you can work hard. If I was just shining shoes, remember the shoe shine boys, the shoe shine boys. They you can't do that. You got to have a permit to do that. Now you would rather for them to go sell drugs or commit crimes versus shining the shoe. You know, so this is these things is it just when you think about it, you say, damn, these people are cruel, and they only have one agenda, and that's their agenda. And that's what I was talking about when I'm telling you, and like when you were talking about the TIF money earlier. The TIF money was designed to help the community. Am I right? Yes. So where is it being helped at? It's, it's helping you, the, the, the most gentrifying white communities in the city of Chicago. And, and this is what I'm saying. And so now when you talk about racism at its highest peak, you looking at it. They don't even, ain't no looking at it. Ain't no, man, they walk past you. They run past you as if you look like you're trash in your own community. And the reason... I'm saying this is because it's so true because I witnessed it. I'm like, damn. So I'm back there and we're doing a, uh, at the time, a young man, uh, Janari. Janari was killed. I'm in a row house and I'm doing a press conference. And I'm talking, I told a young man to turn himself in who killed Janari, right? So we're doing a press conference. So after the press conference, everybody seemed to scatter, right? So I'm walking by Holy Family Church on Larrabee. And as I'm walking, I see the, the white lady, she's running, she's jogging past, and then she just stopped as if like, and I'm looking at her like, what the fuck she's talking for? As if I'm in her way, right? Now, this is where I come from, but now I'm in your way. I'm like, man, this shit, this crazy. <laughs> and then, don't nothing happens on the near north side unless they, 
the condo association get together and they tell Walter, we're tired of this. They play the music. They do this. They do that. We don't want it anymore. And then, and only then, that's when shit started to get real. And I said, oh, this shit just got real. Okay. So you're going to tell me you come from the row houses, right? You come from the row houses, born and raised. You committed a crime. God forgave you. Now, why are you going to stop forgiving somebody damn else? And when you going to let somebody else eat? You didn't ate all these many years, and you won't let nobody else eat. You won't even let nobody come to the table all because your ass been programmed. Let's just keep it real, man. Uh, that uh, the Walter that Draymond is alluding to is uh, Alderman Walter Burnett. Alderman of the 27th Ward, very close ally of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Before that, very close ally of Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And before that, close ally of Richard M. Daly. So there you go. Right. And, and, Uh, you know, again, I don't want people to think that I'm hating. I'm just saying the facts. If you look at our community and how many, and you can go through that yourself and ask how many people. You know what? Let me tell you this, Ben, and this is insane. They call me they alderman. (laughs) You're down in Texas. <laughs> no, before I went to Texas. Before oh, okay. I went to Texas, oh, okay. Not now. Well, I was in Chicago because I made sure the people had a lot of stuff, man. I fed them. I did community events with them. We did the homeless. We gave our shoes. We gave our clothes. We did so many things. We provided services for the men and women coming home from prison to help them become productive members of society. We did a lot of stuff. And if you go over there right now, a lot of people will tell you, fuck Walter. Walter ain't never did shit for us. And, and, and it's sad because that's our brother. And we must embrace, you know, our brothers. But at the same time, don't forget where you come from. That's all I'm saying. You don't owe us nothing. I tell everybody, you don't owe me nothing. I owe myself everything. And I'm going I'm to work hard to get it. But at the same time, your help could be, that can further me along the way I'm trying to get to, to versus you not. And you know what? I was taking the kids to Great America. Walter would help me with the bus, right? And when I tell them I want to do something real big and huge for the community, I only started getting support. It's like at the it's like when it was forced. Somebody else had to say something. And you know, I, I'm talking about, bro, I can't make this shit up. And you you've been there long. You know more about it long. I've been around long than I have. The people don't want to know how much you know, they want to know how much you care. Yeah. And if you don't show people how much they care, they don't react. So you look at the kids with the violence and, and the drugs and all that, that's because they feel like don't nobody care because everywhere they turn, they've been turned down. They've been lied to so much. They don't know who to believe. And then when the government took away the powers, when they can tell the parents they want to divorce them, they lost their damn mind. And that is why the gunplay is like it is. And then another thing, let's look at this. How in the hell that these kids get their hands on a gun that with the switch created to it that can shoot like a motherfucking machine gun. Come on, man. This is by design. Mm. This is to destroy the black on black and then continues to say, that's why I'm telling you black death is a hustle because they create the problem and then they talk about it at the same damn time. And that that's the problem. They didn't grow up and they ain't had no way to get no access to no damn guns with no switch. What you know, just, the when Tommy you said, gun was created back in the day. It's all coming around. It's just like in the beginning. When the whites didn't want to live by the blacks, they moved to the suburbs. 
When shit started getting bad in the suburbs, now they want to come back to the city and now they want to reverse it and move all the blacks to the damn suburbs and y'all deal with the floods and the tornadoes and all that and let us live this lavish life and we're going to start in Cabrini. All right, uh, we have to uh, close down the show for today. That's a good spot uh, to leave it as any. And uh, I, I, I actually do want to uh, throw a trick question at you. That is uh, not a heavy question. So this is a trick question. And by the way, I just have to point out a uh, very subtle uh, Raymond, at least three times uh, kind of let everybody know that I'm way older than he is. <laughs> I'm just he, at least three times. He goes, Ben, you're a veteran. Ben, you. <laughs> All right, Raymond, you're younger than me. Okay. We get it. All right. So here's my question for you. We'll close it on a, on a lighter note because it mm-hmm. is a very sobering thing, but let's just close it on a lighter note. In your humble opinion, Raymond Richard, what is the best movie about Cabrini Green or set in Cabrini Green, in your humble opinion of all time, the best Cabrini Green movie? Go, Raymond Richard. Cooley High. Yep. <laughs> Cooley High. It showed you so many different parts of what was going on. The good times, the bad times, the struggle in the schools, the struggle to get along with each other. And as you look at it, Preach didn't even trick. They just thought he did. And yeah. as, a, as, a, as a result, Coach got killed. I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, I have to give a shout out to the great, the legendary Rick Stone, star of Cabrini. Yeah, Green. Rick Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, bingo. Bingo. Uh, punch the kid under the Sedgwick train tracks. Uh, I agree with you 100%. No question. You passed the audition, young man. Yeah, Maurice Garrett, too. Maurice Garrett starred in it, too. As bingo, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, Raymond Richard, thank you so much. Anthony, thank you for introducing me to Raymond. And uh, I got a feeling you're going to be a regular on my show because you got a lot to say and you're not afraid to say it. Uh, and uh, every for next time he comes on the show, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to take a, a, a glass of whiskey. And uh, every time he alludes to the fact that I'm older than him, I'm going to take a shot. And by the end of the show, I'll be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Raymond. I really appreciate you taking the time talking to us. Uh, Thank you, man. I appreciate the time for letting, you know, being heard, man. I just hope to help make a difference. And, uh, you know, let's, let's continue this. I think this is a great thing. And um, let's, get, let's, let's do about the change, man, that we need to see. Absolutely. And I also want to thank Alejandra Consino. What a great job she did with the BGA. Uh, she was our guest in the first half of the show, and she had to go out on assignment somewhere. And I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Raymond Richard and Alejandro Casino will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Bye.